Good morning. You know, there's this passage of Scripture in Second Chronicles I'd love for you to turn to that I think is going to have direct bearing upon what we are facing globally, nationally, regionally. We're going to want to unpack this together. And as we delve further and further into Second Chronicles, I think what you're going to find is a running theme that is going to be addressing what we are seeing that's happening throughout the world, and yet what's happening in this nation as well. So if you'd find your way now in your Older Testament to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and today we're in chapter 7. We'll pause next week for communion, then pick it up subsequent to that. But in chapter 7, we are given what God in some ways has provided as a formula for spiritual revival, what has also been called an awakening or a renewal among God's people within a region, a nation, or this world. So now in Second Chronicles, in chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, we find these words. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Now, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to their prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Now, as for you, if you walk before me as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws... I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said, You shall never fail to have a man to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land which I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I'll make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled. Say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, because they've forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, brought them out of Egypt and embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. And interestingly, it began with Solomon himself, didn't it? Who didn't follow through on what we've just seen here. Which we'll deal with in his own personal experience in weeks to come. 
But this morning, I want to focus our attention now upon what God has said and how a sense of spiritual renewal impacts a nation, the world, but of course the individual. To do that, we're going to start by, by looking to God in prayer. When we gather together like this, we're always aware that there are needs, lots and lots of needs. It's that parent who has a great burden for children to come up to know Christ as Lord and Savior. There are husband and wife relationships. There's that person who's single and feeling that sense of aloneness in some settings and grappling with when they come into a building like this, will I fit in, will I find a place, can I connect with people? We want them to know, Father, how much they're loved. Father, there are going to be those that gather together who have tremendous challenges right now medically. And they're coming here and they're, they're looking for, is there a way in which I can make some sense out of what I'm experiencing, pulling together my worship with what a doctor's been saying? There's that person who is right now pondering what's left in the checkbook and wondering now how we're going to pull this off for the next few weeks. There's that individual that's struggling just with the overall atmosphere at work. Can't there be something better than what I'm experiencing? Now, Father, we come into worship settings like this, and if we were to sit and talk and to share what we're experiencing, we'd find out there's a lot in common. But what we want above and beyond is the commonality of embracing Jesus Christ and his cross. Because there we find common ground. It's the place where we are made equal. We recognize our sinful nature and we see your grace coming through Christ's death on that cross to us. And, and we love you for it. We praise you for it. So again, in any of these services, if there's that person who comes and maybe he or she's been spiritually indifferent or calloused or hard, and now it's time to experience that, that softening of the interior of the soul. Do it. Show them how much they're loved. For that wounded warrior who comes walking through these doors, Father, Pray that this will be a place peace and renewal and strengthening. For the one Father who simply wants to grow in grace, I pray as we open up your word that happens. So again, now we're praying that you're going to warm these hearts of our mind, ours and engage these minds of ours. So again, now we've come here to see Jesus, him only, and Praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a gathering of prayer in 1727. Some men who would be greatly used by God in the course of history were gathered in that one room. Names like George Whitfield and Charles Wesley come to mind. 
We've referenced them in prior weeks. We do it again this morning. Wesley writes, at about 3 o'clock in the morning, as we were continuing in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out with joy, and we bowed in reverence. And as soon as we recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of God's majesty, we broke out together in one voice. We praise you, O God. We acknowledge you to be the Lord. When a congregation gains a greater and greater sense of the presence of God in our midst, there becomes this inner conviction that God, in fact, is Lord of our lives, not merely Lord of Sunday morning. That he has ultimate say over family and over private decisions, all aspects of our lives. But that doesn't seem to be the case when you and I look at what's happening around the world. Now, when you and I approach the seventh chapter of Second Chronicles, our Lord seems to be speaking to us that I have something to offer you, something to provide, but you need to be tremendously spiritually aware and in tune with what it is I want to say and what it is I want to do. We're delving a little deeper now into the subject of revival as described in 2 Chronicles, which some describe as spiritual awakenings, great awakenings in history or in time. Others described as times of spiritual refreshment. However you want to phrase it, no matter what word you want to utilize to describe it, what you will now see in these few verses we're going to ponder together is the key that begins to unlock the understanding with regard to what it is that God wants to do within our midst. I want to draw three significant provisions that God has to offer you and me this morning. We're going to inch toward the first, which we are going to simply describe as the need for revival. As I begin reading in verse 11. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night. This is the second major appearance by God within the experience of Solomon. The first was that nighttime moment where God, in essence, gave him the blank check and said, what it is that you desire of me? And he said, above and beyond, I desire wisdom to lead, to guide, to direct these people. And God gave him that and more. And now the second appearance is described in Second Chronicles. The Lord appeared to him at night. Notice what he says to him. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, 
if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We're going to focus simply on verses 13 and 14 this morning. We're going to start by looking very carefully at what God describes here as the need for revival within our own personal experience. And he will provide you and me now three significant indicators in this world, ways by which he seeks to get our attention, revival is needed. Start with verse 13 where he says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. He is now speaking to us ecologically. There's your first word, your first indicator. There is no rain. Notice this. This is his sovereign doing. He's taking responsibility for this decision. He doesn't merely say, when there is no rain. He says, when I shut up the heavens. And you might be saying, now, God, that's not the most loving thing to do to a farmer. We're not done yet. We've got to get started here. There is grace in restraint. There is grace in withholding. But we've got to ask ourselves, but why is he doing this? That's a a legitimate question we need to be asking. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain... He is now ecologically getting the attention of us worldwide. The environmental movement may be asking similar questions throughout the years. The Christian begins to ponder the significance of what this is all about. Now when you look at that word, I want you to now ponder the painting that appears on the screen behind me. And think about what is occurring that triggered this painter's creation. We know that in 1621, the pilgrims invited local tribespeople to share in their first harvest, don't we? But interestingly, in 1622, they didn't plant enough so that the harvest was too scarce for celebration. Trying to compensate, now in 1623, they did extra planting But here's what happened. A serious drought threatened their crops. For 12 weeks, it did not rain. Even the natives said that they had never seen anything like this at this time of the season and before. The pilgrims were wondering and asking, is God angry with us? One of their leaders, Edward Winslow, wrote these words. The group decided to humble ourselves together before the Lord by fasting and prayer. And so a day was appointed by public authority and set apart for that and that alone. The day-long prayer meeting began under clear skies, he writes. But by late afternoon, the weather was overcast, the clouds gathered on all sides. 
On the next morning, distilled such soft, moderate showers of rain, which continued on for some 14 days, and mixed with such seasonable weather, it was hard to say whether our withered corn or our withered spiritual state were most quickened or revived. Such was the goodness of our God. Now in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, you and I are informed in verse 3, He is good. His love endures forever. Building off of this, and the pilgrims recognized that they had something in 2 Chronicles 7 on their hands here. Winslow added that the tribes people as well took note of the goodness of God towards us. That brought about so great a change in so short a time, showing the difference between their approach to worshiping their gods and our prayer based upon the name of our God for rain. He is good. His love endures forever. Now, in this whole realm, when we are looking globally or nationally or regionally or personally, when God in his grace begins to put an indicator in front of you, Initially, that indicator may come across negatively. That there is an absence of something. A withholding of something. A removal of something or someone. Rather than viewing God negatively, we need to begin to ask God constructively, what is it now that you are trying to say to us? Here is the first of three indicators in this passage regarding the need for revival. There's a second indicator I see here. In verse 13, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, comma, mark what comes next, all command locusts to devour the land. Camp on that one for just a second. Not only is he speaking to us, trying to get our, our attention ecologically, secondly, he does so economically. He wants to address his people sometimes through the economy. Israel was an agricultural economy. When locusts would strike the land, that produced such a severe impact upon the economic condition. They couldn't produce the crops, they couldn't produce, and as a result, there was not enough there to be able to feed the family and meet the needs of the nation. Take a look at these before and after scenes that appear on the screen. In the upper corner, what you and I notice is that this is a fig tree. This fig tree was a tree found in Jerusalem. The year was 1915. It's in full foliage. Notice the lower scene. That is the same fig tree 15 minutes later. 
due to a locust plague within that region. One of the great worries agriculturally throughout that region is described in Exodus chapter 10, the plague of the locusts. Now, at this point in history in Palestine, the Israelites had not returned to that land. That would occur in 1948. 1915, this land is still experiencing the plagues and the barrenness, a strickenness, if you will, and it's coming directly from the teachings that are provided us in the book of Deuteronomy, but also in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now what God is saying here is that there are times where I am going to use indicators, forcing you now to monitor the spiritual state and climate of the situation we find ourselves in, you need to be asking serious questions. Why is God restraining his blessing? Why is God withholding his bounty? Why is God seemingly removing all the positives? And ask yourself, is there a positive in the negative? Is there something constructive in the midst of what seems to, according to my eyes, be very destructive. Now when you begin to look at this, we begin to appreciate what God might be saying. Sometime when you are in the hospital, walk past a nurse's station and ponder the way in which they're monitoring what's happening in various rooms. My daughter told me last week she was behind the nurse's desk cardiologist was in a particular room talking with the family when lo and behold a monitor signaled a need for direct intervention raced into the room began CPR on that particular patient the cardiologist and others turned around shocked by what was going on as she was on that bed trying to revive this patient That monitor signals that there is something wrong, but there is a blessing in the monitor. There's a blessing in the signal. C.S. Lewis argues that pain is a gift from God. It is God's megaphone to get our attention that there is something wrong. Now what God is saying here is take a good hard look ecologically. Take a good hard look economically. When you are watching the news, ponder what are some of the indicators here where God is saying, you're missing something. You've lost something. I'm withholding something. And then ask yourself the question, why? Bring the before and after of the fig tree into your own spiritual condition and begin to ask serious questions about what is going on in this world at this time. There's a third monitor, a third indicator here. Again in verse 13, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, ecologically, or command locusts to devour the land, economically, but now furthermore says, or send a plague 
astoundingly now, among my people. Not those people out there. My people. Now before you're prone to say, but that's not good, you just got done singing with the others in Second Chronicles 7, He is good, His love endures forever. Which means then that sometimes God permits the bad for the good. And sometimes what may appear to be bad may in reality be good. And sometimes the withdrawal is necessary for the provision to be made. And sometimes the pain is good because it's telling us, it's alerting us. We need to embrace the fact that something in our lives needs to be addressed. Personally, regionally, nationally, and globally. And so what God will sometimes do now is use these various means as attention grabbers. And we can't just simply dismiss them as naturalistic effects. The Moravians understood this well. They had a great impact upon the, upon the movement within the heart of both Wesley and Whitfield. Whitfield, the great evangelist of another era. When the Moravians arrived in Greenland, you and I are told, they were unable during the first year to make any impact whatsoever with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then, a smallpox epidemic broke out. And the believers here now, the Moravian believers, went among the people, ministering to their bodies, risking their own physical condition as well, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once that began to take place, the way was being paved and cleared. People said, quote, you have nursed us in our sickness. You have cared for us in distress. You have buried our dead. Now tell us about your Jesus. Tell us about your Jesus. As the people in Greenland saw some of the Moravians bury their dead as well. Why would you come? Why would you share? Why would you even care? Now, when a congregation is at cutting edge, it's because during the course of the week, we show we care. With sleeves rolled up, you're showing you care. And when people are starting to ask tough questions, why is this happening ecologically? Why is this happening economically, whether it be nationally or personally? Why is this happening physically? Begin to ask some questions. Get them to think. Now, not every physical situation is necessarily a true indicator that there was a sin in that life. Sometimes due to the randomness of sin in this fallen world, we experience such things as cancer, heart attacks, and so on. But what we have to do is to group together indicators. And if there is a pattern, if there is linkage, and we're beginning to say that economically, ecologically, relationally, physically, 
maritally. On and on and on we go. There seems to be a breakdown. We need to go back to the Garden of Eden experience where Adam and Eve sought to remove themselves from the presence of God. Now in spiritual revival, what you and I will find is that there is a tremendous awareness of God's presence. And what fascinates me is that there was a self-consciousness, there was a God-consciousness, but they wanted, as a result of this self-conscious, God-conscious element in their souls, distance. They didn't pursue God. God pursued them. Now likewise, when we begin to recognize the need for revival, this is God's pursuit. Sometimes he may use ecological matters. Sometimes he may use economic trends. Sometimes he may choose a physical aspect. But no matter what it is, when you begin to spot patterns in linkage, and you see that things are different today than they were yesterday, ask yourself, is God begin to, beginning to communicate, there is a need in this family. There is a need in your life. There is a need in this nation. There is a need right now in this world because there is distancing. A slow distancing that has occurred. You could be physically close on a Sunday morning, but spiritually distant simultaneously to the things of the Lord. And the most severe case would have been Judas sitting at that table that night with Jesus and the other disciples. You see? So now, once you and I have begun to process the need for revival, We've got to ask, well, what then can be done to be able to bring on this true sense of revival that we're describing in these pages? Look now at verse 14 and how it begins. We had just ended verse 13 where it reads, or send a plague among my people. Look for patterns. Verse 14, if my people. In other words, he wants to say something to his people. Notice the first condition, because we are now going to deal with the conditions of revival, found in verse 14. There are four of them. The first condition is this, if my people will humble themselves. Now, when God says, my people, in the Bible, that is a phrase that goes beyond the Israelites. He is referring to both believing Jew and believing Gentile. The book of Joel in chapter 2 brings that out for us. And if you were to examine very carefully Joel 2 verse 32 and so on, you would find as you move towards the end of that chapter a tremendous emphasis, you see, upon God and his people, Jew and Gentile alike. That is spoken of again in Acts chapter 15 when the disciples had to embrace the fact that grace was for Gentiles as well as Jews. 
So now God is speaking universally here to both believing Jew and believing Gentile. And he says, here's the first condition I want to lay before you. If you have spotted now these three or more indicators, and there's a pattern developing. My first condition for you is this. If my people will humble themselves. Corporately. Individually yet corporately. The word humble here in the Hebrew carries with the idea of to subdue. Hebrew word kena. Literally, to bend the knee before an authority. It was used to describe the Midianites who were subdued by Gideon in Judges chapter 8, verse 28. Now when you begin to think of the idea of humbling yourself before God, Go to the cross of Jesus Christ. And think of Philippians, for example, in chapter 2 and verse 8, where he humbled himself, Christ did, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And here the second member of the Trinity is humbling himself before the first member of the Trinity. Even though he is co-equal to the Father, he is willing to submit to the Father. Now, if the sinless one was willing to submit to the first member of the Trinity... How much more should the sinful one be submitting? So now, is there anything in your own personal life right now that needs to be subdued by God's grace? Is there anything in your life where saying, oh, I'm kneeling here and I'm kneeling there, but I'm standing over here with my hands on my hips because I'm just not ready to submit Then you better take a good hard look at the indicators and ask, is there a pattern here to what God is attempting to say to you personally? If my people will humble themselves, then is the very first of the four conditions. Here's the second one. If my people will pray. If my people will pray. It was Samuel who would say in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. I don't know about you, but that grips my heart. Ponder Exodus chapter 17, where in the battlefield we find Moses with his arms stretched, uplifted towards the heavens with his colleagues to the left and the right, upholding him so that he could continue to intercede for the Israelite people. And as you begin to picture that and ponder that, take a good hard look, for example, at, at the next scene that appears on the screen. It's a still. It's taken from New York City of uh, the 1800s. For you see, there's this Dutch Reformed church on Fulton Street that had a tremendous desire to penetrate that region with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah Lamphere, who had been a businessman, but then had become a pastor, was taken on as pastor of outreach in that region. He tried knocking on doors, distributing pamphlets, but it was not having an effect. In 
He writes, One day as I was walking along the streets, the idea was suggested to my mind that an hour of prayer from 12 to noon would be beneficial to the business people of this community. The idea blossomed. Weekly prayer time, open to anyone. Come when you can, leave when you can, handbills advertising the first meeting. It was on noon, September 23, 1857. Lamphere waited for the first attenders during the noon hour break. No one showed up for the first 10 minutes. 20. 30. Then one man struggled in, and then another, and the hour ended with six present praying. Following week, there were 20. Next week, just shy of 40. But soon, around 100. Some of them wanted to meet every day during the noon hour. Rooms were packed. The church ran out of space, and so the gathering was moved to the theater, and in March of 1858, the New York Times reported that Burton's Theater on Chambers Street was packed with a crowd of 3,000 in prayer. Interestingly enough, it triggered the spiritual movement of revival in 1857 through 58. The question is asked, what caused such immediate interest in prayer? The stock market crashed. But you see, when Lamphere was going door to door inviting people, it had not yet done so. Economically, an indicator stood out. Something needs to be done. Now, what you and I need to do is to monitor the indicators, look for the patterns, and ask yourself what is God saying by not saying? What is God doing by not doing? What is God giving by withholding? There is grace in withdrawal. There is a positive in the negative. If my people, number one, will humble themselves, and if my people, number two, will, will pray. Thirdly, if my people will seek my face, now begin to ask yourself, on a daily basis, what is it that I crave? What are my longings? So many times addictions are just simply distortions of the value and the need to seek God. Emotional distortions rooted in sin, creating substitute longings, when in reality we are to be seeking first. His kingdom, His righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto us, you see. But addictions and cravings so often are poor substitutes for the realities of rich grace. Who am I seeking, and what am I seeking, and when am I seeking, and am I willing then to accept the fact that sometimes God creates this empty space within my soul and I reach a point where I'm saying, there's absolutely nothing that I'm doing, nothing that I'm seeking that can fill this eternal cavity except God and God himself. 
And then in a very personal way, he utilizes the physical illustration of the face because there is something incredibly personally engaging relationally when you are standing face to face. And now, as a result of our prayer gatherings on Sunday nights, which we dub face to face, if my people will seek my face, and fourthly, if my people will turn from their wicked ways. Now, when you look at that, I want you to ponder what comes next on the screen. Take a look at that still. These are soldiers, 1861 through 65. Now, remember, revival in America broke out in 1857 through 59. This is now 1861, and what has happened? Civil war. Civil war. You would think that revival would bring people together, but you see there is such political and national divisions. Now is starting the revival was to expose the big issue, which was spiritual, within this nation. So what do we see here? Soldiers of the North. Just one example, you see, of soldiers recognizing the tremendous spiritual need within their lives. In the Union Army, between 100 and 200,000 soldiers came to know the Lord. But now notice the next scene. These are the southern troops, the Confederates. And among the Confederate forces, approximately 150,000 troops came to know the Lord. Perhaps 10% of all Civil War soldiers experienced conversion during the conflict. One historian writes, a great revival occurred among Robert E. Lee's forces in the fall of 63 and the winter of 64. Some 7,000 soldiers came to know the Lord. Revival also swept the Union Army at the same time. Sometimes there were 24-7 periods of prayer. Chapels couldn't hold the soldiers who wanted to get inside. In 1864, the Army of Northern Virginia had 15 chapels. One chapel built by the Army of Tennessee seated more than 1,000 people. Now what's God doing? He's utilizing an indicator. He's saying, have you sensed division? Remember, some of these generals were at West Point together in the same classroom, now fighting against one another. Do you experience tension where families are being torn, some from the north, some from the south? Is there a unity that is beginning to develop here through the working of the Holy Spirit? Millions of tracts were distributed during the war. The U.S. Christian Commission alone distributed 30 million tracts, including many through a young agent by the name of D.L. Moody. So we begin to ask ourselves, am I willing to embrace these four conditions as I have monitored, evaluated, and processed the various indicators, the need for revival. I will hear from heaven. If my people will humble themselves, if my people will pray, 
if my people will seek my face, if my people will turn from their wicked ways. And now we see north and south at work. We move from the need for revival through the conditions which are for of revival to thirdly, the blessings from revival. And you start in verse 14 with the statement from our Lord. I will hear from heaven. Ever wonder sometimes if you've got a real audience with God? If it seems as though there's been distancing and removal, that he is a distant relative, an absentee landlord, walk yourself now through the needs Walk yourself through the conditions. Have I humbled myself? Ask yourself that now. Am I praying? Am I seeking his face? Am I turning from any particular wicked way? Don't be selective and choose three of the four. Be collective and embrace all of the four. Then you're ready to fully appreciate the blessings from revival. The first promise, I will hear from heaven. The second promise, I will forgive their sin. The third promise, I will heal their land. And ponder 1989, where another prayer meeting had an effect on the society. Because for several years, four churches in Leipzig, East Germany, have been holding weekly prayer meetings every Monday at 5. Now, political change was in the air in 1989. Think of the Berlin Wall. After the prayer meetings, people would light candles and walk peacefully through the city streets. Look at the scene that appears next on the screen. It was a gentle protest against the atheistic communist regime. The peaceful protests began to grow. On October 9th, the Germans began to what they call now the turning point. The East German government got involved, sending in police and soldiers with orders to shoot the protesters, the people with the candles. Now many feared a bloodbath. When one church opened its doors for the weekly prayer meeting, 2,000 Communist Party members rushed in to take the seats. No problem, they had a savvy pastor. He had the balconies opened up. The usual protesters, like it or not, arrived to pray, and the communists had to sit through a prayer meeting. Did prayer silence the weapons? That's what many German Christians believe. 
Amazingly, shots were not fired that night in Leipzig as 70,000 people marched peacefully through the town, or the next Monday when 120,000 marched, or the next when nearly 500,000. Look at the next scene that appears on the screen. In early November, nearly a million marched through the capital, East Berlin. Police defied orders to shoot. Soon there's an opening of the famous Berlin Wall, and the stunning development spread throughout Eastern Europe as peaceful revolutions dismantled communist regimes. Read the book Candles in the Dark sometime to get the story behind the story. It's brilliant. What did this prayer meeting movement have in common? The New Republic, which has never been pro-Christian, reported, Quote, whether or not prayers really move mountains, they certainly mobilize the people of Germany. Unquote. Certainly there were political and social undercurrents, but don't miss the spiritual dimension. It was obvious the people were more closely involved, so much so that a few weeks after that dramatic quote-unquote turning point, Someone put up a banner in Leipzig which read, Wir danken dir, Kirchen. It read, We thank you, church. Quote. Unquote. As a Wesley and a Whitfield, among others, are praying at three in the morning. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. They were aware of their need. They followed the conditions, the blessings. They ensued. This study is the beginning of a series in Second Chronicles that will continue to address this issue personally, regionally, nationally, globally. Let's be in prayer. And let's stand together. And so, Father, what we want to do now is we want to be, we want to be aware of the indicators. Sometimes, in your grace, you create needs. And there's a delay before meeting the need to force us then to move from recognizing the need to following the conditions. And when the blessings do come, I pray we'll never take them for granted and go back to same old, same old. But remain consciously aware of your presence. And this is all of your grace. So thank you for each one here. As we move to the adult Bible fellowships, and as we move out to minister in the various settings in this county and beyond, use us powerfully now for your glory and honor. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.